Please stand if you're able for the reading of God's holy word. We'll read Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 and then Hebrews 2 verses 1 through 4. Hebrews 1, 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Look there at verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your most holy word. We pray that you might write it upon our hearts. Give us a confidence in it that we may walk in the light of it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We continue in our series, Foundations of Faith. This evening we will consider the former ways ceased. We saw in Romans 1, 18 through 25, how the light of nature and the revelation that God has made in nature is real. It has substance. It teaches us about the true God, not that there is a God, but there, there is one true God. But that this light of nature is insufficient for salvation since men abuse it to their damnation. We saw from Proverbs 22, verses 17 through 21, Isaiah 8 and Matthew 4, that God has given us the certainty of the words of truth by giving us a written revelation in the Bible. We also saw in 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15, that Timothy had come to know the scriptures since he was an infant, and how those scriptures are necessary since the Bible alone gives us a sufficient knowledge to make us wise to salvation. Now then, let us consider Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, and chapter 2 of the same book, verses 1 through 4. Hebrews 1, 1. Now, in our English Bibles, it says God as the first word in this book. But in the Greek, it is not so. In the book of Hebrews here, we have several different adverbs that go first. At sundry times, and in diverse manners, in times past. Then it says God after all of that. So it gives us to understand the various times, the various manners, and the ancientness of this revelation. At sundry times, emphatically, and in diverse ways, emphatically, in former times, emphatically, God. The God. God himself, having spoken, is the participle. In these successive parts, God, bit by bit, as his wisdom saw fit, in various different ways, at various different times, in the ancient times, God spake. 
God used forms like angels. People heard audible voices or mental voices. They saw visions with their eyes or with their minds. God would visit them with various types of illustrations. Take this basket of figs, take it down by the river, leave it there, come back and find it, and it's rotten. He's teaching them lessons from the potter's house in the book of Jeremiah. These illustrations are given. Various ways, various forms, God gave in time past. In antithesis to the present, long ago, formerly, in time past, little by little, in various ways, in former ages, God spake unto the fathers. And this God having spoken is a participle, which means it just describes something else. It describes the verb in verse 2, God spoke. Having spoken in this way to these, he spoke to us in his son. So there is a contrast drawn. God spake unto the fathers. How did he do so? By the prophets, or literally in the prophets. He owned them. He possessed them. He spoke in them or he spoke by them as if they were his pins, as if they were his keyboard, as if they were his secretaries, his amanuensis. That's where someone writes down a letter and you dictate it to them and they write down exactly what you say. That's what the prophets were to God. God spoke by the prophets, that is, those who gave us what we call our Old Testament. It's not Isaiah speaking. It's not Moses. It's not Malachi. Who is it? It's God himself. Thus saith the Lord. God said, it is written. These all mean the same thing. God has spoken to us in the Old Testament to the fathers by the prophets. God spoke. The Westminster Annotations say, a king speaketh by, he doth not speak in his ambassadors. God doeth both. God speaks in his ambassadors. He possesses their persons, carries them along, and he also uses them as a tool or an instrument to speak. I note then this doctrine. Scripture is God's speech, God's oracles, God's word. God is the author of the Bible. Now, notice, the sentence properly begins in English with the word God because he's the subject. He's the one doing the speaking. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake. That's proper. God is the subject of the sentence. Even though the Greek puts all the adverbs first, it still shows you he's the subject by using what we call the nominative case. The case of the subject of the sentence. God is the speaker when it comes to his word. The prophets are the means by which or in which he spoke. The people who received his speech were the fathers. We see that. God speaks in the Bible. He is the subject of the sentence. His action is having spoken. Not Isaiah, not Moses. Not Malachi, not David, not Paul. God speaks in the Bible. William Perkins says, The scripture is the word of God written in a language fit for the church. 
by men immediately called to be the clerks or secretaries of the Holy Ghost. Then he cites 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. God is the speaker in the Bible. The prophets are his amanuenses. They are his secretaries. They are his clerks. This is a rebuke to what has been come to be called organic inspiration. Well, you see, the Bible grew up organically like a seed of a tomato plant. It came in contact with the soil, it had water, it had warmth and sunshine, and then it kind of came up with a little power from the seed itself. See how all those things work together in a naturalistic process? Oh, that's how the Bible was inspired too. It's the word of Paul, it's the word of Moses, it's the word of history, and it's the word of God. You'd be surprised who believes this. People think that the Bible was organically inspired, like somehow that makes it acceptable to wicked, godless people who hate the word of God. No, it doesn't. They just laugh at you because you're trying to pretend to be like them. The Bible is God's word. It is not the word of Paul. It is not the word of history. Oh, you see... When Paul wrote that, you have to understand the world in which he lived, the historic context. They were all meanie misogynists. So what he says is just a product of history, you see. No, I don't see. It's either the word of God in its entirety or they're lying to you because the scriptures themselves say that they're the word of God. So they're either lying to you or they're right. It's not both. Can't have it both ways. They're either telling you the truth or they aren't. It is not a blend of God, nature, and the finite mind of the human authors. No, God spake in the prophets unto the fathers. These writings are to be received by us as if God were narrating to us from heaven the words that we read. Would you like to hear from God? Many people want to hear God. I want to know what the will of God is for my life. Tole lege, take up and read. If you want to hear an audible voice from God, read it out loud. Then you'll hear an audible voice from God. God spoke in times past unto the fathers by or in the prophets. Let us read the word of God with reverence. This is God speaking to us. With faith, can an almighty power who speaks to us accomplish what he promises? Of course he can. Let's believe him with faith. With love, did God have to deliver these oracles to us? No, he chose to. Out of his great love for us, and what is the proper response? To love in return for all the goodness that God has shown to us. Another doctrine it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare his will unto his church. This is from our Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 1. God of his own free choice, it pleased him to reveal in various times, little bit by little bit, in various types of ways, sometimes by an audible voice, sometimes through an angel, sometimes through a symbol, to reveal himself, who is God, what is he like, how can I be reconciled to him, 
and his will. What is the duty he requires of us? He's declared that to us. He's put it in writing. He chose to do it by his great mercy. The sacred scriptures are a revelation of God bit by bit, here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept, building the great edifice or building of divine truth. You start with the foundation, creation, the fall of man, the redemption that comes in Christ, the promises to Abraham, the promise to David, the calling of Moses, the establishment of the kingdom, the worship of God, the service of God, till Christ comes in the flesh. Little by little, God builds in a multifarious, multimodal way this house of truth. Let us recognize this cumulative truth of God. It builds up little by little, brick by brick, as the wall grows larger and larger till we have the full house of the New Testament. Now notice verse 2. God having spoken in verse 1, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Here notice, hath in these last days. You remember I said verse 1 was a participle, having spoken, now here's the main verb, spoke. Having spoken describes how he spoke to us. Now notice the contrast. Having spoken, spoke, verse 1 and verse 2, to the fathers, verse 1, to us, verse 2, by the prophets, verse 1, but how so to us? By his son, or literally, in son. In that sphere of his only begotten son, he spoke to us. Yes, by the prophets, by their hands, by their mouth, by their pen. But now we have a final word, not from the servants, but from the son himself. Not from the slaves who leave the house, but those who inherit all, the heir of all things, the son of God. Was Moses a faithful servant in God's house? Yes. Was he the heir of the house? No, Jesus is the heir of the house. He is the builder of the house. Whom God hath appointed heir of all things, that is his son, God's firstborn, his only begotten son. How did Moses inherit? How do we inherit? Because we're united to Christ himself, who is the heir of all things. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That's how the gospel works. God appointed his son with this codicil, this little addition to his testament. He uttered it by or in his son, the finality of God's revelation in his son, the fullness of his revelation is pointed to Christ the heir, no longer Israel, but Christ himself, the successor, the creator of all things, God and man, heir of all by whom also he made the worlds, that is, the aeons, the ages, and all things contained in those ages. He created things visible and invisible. Without him was not anything made that was made, John 1, 3. Could we say this of Moses? Could we say this of Elijah? Could we say this of David? Was all created by David? No. 
Was all created by the Son of God? Yes. God and man. Two distinct natures. One person forever. God, having spoken in the prophets, now speaks to us in Son, or hath spoken once for all in Son. I note then this doctrine. The New Testament revelation and oracles are the fullest, the final, and the ultimate revelation. The New Testament revelation and oracles are the fullest, the final, and the ultimate revelation. As the Old Testament was the building block of God's house of truth, so the revelation in Christ by his holy apostles is the final touchstone. That's it. It's done. God has finished his house. This is a rebuke to those that seek additional revelations beyond God speaking in his son to us. By the way, this is why Islam must deny that Jesus is the son of God. They just make him a regular prophet like everybody else. Why? Because they want a later revelation. If God has spoken to us in son, as it says here, then that's it. You don't expect anything else. We don't ask for anything more. But what do they want? More revelation. So what do they have to make Christ? Not the Son of God. Those who seek additional gifts of the Holy Ghost to confirm new revelations, as we shall consider shortly, are also mistaken. Let us properly esteem and utilize this privilege. The Son of God, the Creator of the worlds, the Judge of all men, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, He has spoken. Let us have ears to hear. Let us admire. Let us read. Let us lay up and treasure. Let us devour His word, whether in the Old or in the New Testament. Now look down at verse 1 of chapter 2, if you would, please. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed because Jesus is the final revelation because he is the brightness of the glory of the father greater than all the holy angels and when God brought his son into the world what did he say to all the angels worship him worship my son because he is supreme and sovereign though they are mighty angels yet he is the supreme and sovereign what should we do therefore we ought. In logical conclusion from the discourse of chapter 1, we are morally obliged. It is morally necessary. That's what ought means. It must come to pass. You must do it. We ought to give the more earnest heed. We should hear carefully. We should not neglect the means of grace delivered to us by Christ and his holy apostles. The things which we have heard, those things concerning the supremacy of Christ, his heirship, his testament of all things, the gospel itself, his dominion as God's king on his holy hill, his supremacy over angels and men and the church, these things that we have heard, we should not let them slip. 
not let them slip away. In the ancient world, you'd have massive rocks. These were called ankura. We, we say anchors for a ship, right? Ankura, a large rock. And they would tie a rope around the rock to keep the ship from sailing away. What happens if that big rope around that massive rock starts slipping away? What happens to your ship? Gone. Little by little, slips away until off it goes and sunk to the bottom of the ocean. Don't let it slip. Keep it fast. Verse 2, for if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, if he who is the Son of God higher than the angels speaks, and the angels spoke, and everything they said was steadfast, what do you think about the words of the Son? Will they be steadfast? Will they be fulfilled? Will you be punished if you violate them and forsake them? Of course you will. How shall we escape? Verse 3 asks. We who have heard the word of God spoken in son, rather than merely by prophets and slaves, rather than by angels, as the fathers heard the word, we shall not escape if we neglect so great salvation. Not a mere temporal deliverance from Egypt, from a foreign tyrant, or political enemies. We have a salvation so great that it goes on forevermore. In the book of Judges, did they ever get back into foreign tyrants ruling over them? Hmm. So what is it, an everlasting salvation they had? No. What about us? Will we ever fall back into the tyranny of the devil if we commit ourselves to Jesus Christ? Of course not. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. Does God go back on his promises? Of course not. This salvation is so great. It delivers from destruction and torments, flames and worms in hell. And this so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, verse 3 tells us, the Son of God himself, not angels, not prophets, God in the flesh began to speak this salvation. At the first, or at the beginning, at the R.K., like in John 1.1, N-R-K, hear the same word. This began to be spoken at the beginning of what? The beginning of the gospel, Mark 1.1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I note then, salvation comes by words. Did you know this? Some people despise this concept. Our salvation began to be spoken by the Lord himself and was confirmed by them that heard him. How? By speaking and by writing things down. By words, in other words. Salvation is a thing of truth. It may be spoken, it may be read, it may be heard, it may be written, it may be known. And not only did the Lord Jesus Christ in the beginning of the gospel begin to speak of this salvation, but it was confirmed, made sure, made secure unto us. How? By them that heard him. Who's that? Well, that's the holy apostles. They are the ones who heard him, the apostles of Jesus Christ. They confirmed this salvation once for all. It's used in the aorist. This was confirmed. Once it happened, at a point in time, it's done. They have finished the job. 
They put all their labors here in this passage, all the apostolic labors, as if it's a done deal once for all. The faith once delivered unto the saints. Notice also, verse 4, God also bearing them witness. This verb, bearing them witness, means to attest together with. One witness says something. Another one comes along and confirms his words, bearing witness with. When you have multiple witnesses that bear witness together, it's a confirmed fact. That's what he's saying. Jesus Christ spoke to his apostles. His apostles confirmed what he said, and God bore witness to what they said. How did he do that? Did he thunder from heaven with a voice? Could they hear audibly? No. You know what they did? They saw things. They felt things. Signs and wonders. This is how God bore witness. He co-attested with them. They spoke, they wrote, but they were not alone. God joined in their confirmation his specific gifts, signs, wonders, diverse miracles, and gifts of the Holy Ghost. This is what we call a quadrad. Four things that overlap each other to describe one massive work of God. Signs, wonders, miracles, gifts. Overlapping categories, but these are how God himself bore witness to the apostles. Peter could have a napkin taken from his body to heal people. People could stand under Peter's shadow and be healed of their infirmities. God bore witness, confirming their words, confir confirming their preaching and their writing and their apostolic labors. These various categories of divine operation were the manner in which God bore his testimony. And notice, these gifts or distributions of the Holy Ghost, these signs and wonders... These diverse miracles were according to his will, verse 4 tells us. God, according to his free and sovereign will, chose to give them these gifts. Did he have to do that? No. Did he choose to do it? Yes. Why? So that he might bear witness and confirm what they're saying is true. I'm going to prove it to you with miracles and signs and wonders and distributions of my Holy Spirit. I note then this doctrine. Those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people are now ceased. Do you know why that is? Do we need more words from God? Having spoken to us in the prophets, or spoken to the fathers in the prophets, he has now spoken to us in his Son that salvation was confirmed by the apostles and God bore witness to them with the miracles and signs. Do I need more miracles and signs? Or do I have enough? Do I have a complete revelation of God through his Son? Or do I need more? Those former ways of God revealing himself have ceased. He chose to confirm the words of the apostles. Whose else will he confirm? 
Who's going to give us some new revelations that now, oh, okay, now I'll go your way and listen to your truth because now God is bearing witness to what you're saying? I don't think so. God has revealed his word in finality. Having spoken, he spoke. Having sent forth his son who spoke our salvation, they confirmed it who heard him and God bore witness to their words. What more do we want? Here a little, there a little. Now by an angel from heaven, now by visions, now by prophets, now by Jesus himself, God in the flesh, heir of all things. What more are we expecting? He sent his ambassadors. He gave us his word. What else do we need? Every form is rebuked of what we call apostolic succession. Apostolic succession means this. I wish we had some apostles alive today to confirm some new stuff we think should be confirmed. That's basically what it means. We want this to be settled. Let's pretend like somebody's an apostle. Let's smack some miracles on it, and then let's believe their new revelations. There are those who say that the bishops of the church are the successors of the apostles. Why? Because they want to confirm some things that the apostles didn't say. There are those who say that Joseph Smith is this new revealer of truth on the golden plates that he got somewhere in New York or something, and they came down out of heaven in a language nobody ever spoke. And then, poof, they vanished away. Why? Because he wants new revelations. He wants new things to be believed, just like the Mohammedans want new things to believe. Or some want new gifts, or the continuation of the gifts. We want God to bear witness with miracles and signs and wonders and gifts of the Holy Ghost. Why? What are you hoping to tell us? What more do you need to reveal to us that has not yet been revealed? Christ sent his ambassadors, them that heard him. These notions of ongoing apostolic gifts mean one thing. You need more revelations. If the revelation previously given is sufficient, God's witness is done. Why do I need more? I don't. We have the final word. We have the full word. We have the word that God spoke in his son and confirmed it by signs and miracles in them that heard him. What else do we need? Do not be deceived then by those supposed ongoing revelations. If these gifts confirm the apostolic word, they're not necessary. If they're beside the apostolic word, they're ungodly. And if they contradict the apostolic word, they are heretical and damnable. Why do we need them then? We don't. We have a full rule, a final rule, a confirmed, a witnessed, a closed rule that is our canon, our measuring stick, the word of God itself in Scripture. And thus far, the consideration of Hebrews 1 and 2.